0: Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me I had bipolar. I was sent home with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using loud music as a form of therapy. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests, This is Screen Therapy. that run record labels are some of the most underrated people in punk rock. The bands they sign and the choices they make have monumental effects on the punk scene. Bill Wilson is the founder of Blackout Records. Over the years, his label has released albums by New York City hardcore legends Killing Time, Breakdown, H2O, Sheer Terror, and many more. Although the New York scene has been known for its aggressive music, its members were some of the most caring and supportive people in Bill's life. Struck by a severe illness when he was young, it was his creativity in releasing and designing records that helped him through an incredibly tough time. A support system is one of the pillars of mental and physical health. Bill's impenetrable bond with some of the most notable characters in New York City hardcore got him through his darkest times. Re releasing classic albums by the bands who shaped his life has truly been a full circle experience. I'm just watching out for anything to be anything Or maybe it's maybe I just wanted to see what's coming you Or maybe it's maybe I just wanted to say goodbye Double stomach runs, I stumble across my hands and knees And I'm afraid that I'm crawling back again Double stomach doesn't heal the pain Don't you die, don't you die The time don't heal the pain
1: So I'm Bill Wilson, the founder of Blackout Records. I got into punk rock because I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s in suburban New York. And there was a tremendous amount of cultural differences that I found with my peers in that local area. And I needed to find a new tribe. So punk gave me the home that I never felt that I had. It was kind of the island of misfit toys that I felt more at home with than I really felt anything else. Growing up in Westchester County, Yonkers, New York, it was kind of a cultural no-fly zone in a lot of ways, and music was always backwards, fashion was always backwards. It was just very troglodyty in a lot of ways, and I was just interested in art and science and books and different things and I wasn't just there to like play stickball and eat bubblegum the way that a lot of my peers at the time were doing and when I was able to first find heavy metal which is what the first genre I listened to was and then I found New York City because I was living so close to it and I found out what was happening downtown it really became a second home for me as far as punk rock and as far as the salvation that it offered to me. I talk a lot with people about how everybody in hardcore that I've ever met has some kind of damage. And that could be from terrible family upbringing. It could be from alcoholic parents. It could be Circumstantial, whether you know they were had abuse from clergy, or they had abuse from a neighbor, or they had abuse from wherever, or they had, as in my case, some debilitating health issues that set people apart from the rest of the world. That you realized that you were different, and you were an individual, and you needed to find a group of people that would be more accepting of you being too smart or too crazy or too creative to fit in with the cookie-cutter suburban world.
0: Metal has been a huge thing for a lot of folks who are into hardcore and punk rock. It's the same for me. It was a good gateway in some ways to move into hardcore, going from, let's say, Slayer to Cro-Mags to Minor Threat and down the line. And you mentioned how you came to New York City and you found your people and you found the style of music, I would imagine, that you really attached yourself to. And I'm wondering what it was about those kinds of bands that really did it for you.
1: I grew up, again, suburban New York, where it was still the last vestiges of that almost 70s rock scene. The clubs up there were still very much kind of like the clubs you would find in the 70s. So It was almost like the Twisted Sister circuit that was still (laughs) very active at the time when I was just getting into middle school. To put it in somewhat of a social context, I got into seventh grade the year that Pink Floyd The Wall was big. And the first band that I ever loved was Kiss because I was a comic book drawing person. Because of my health issues, I entertained myself in my head a lot and drawing was a way that I escaped. And so Kiss, seeing them, what nine-year-old or 10-year-old boy doesn't want to be the demon? Right. <laughs> yeah. And then that made me have a love for hard rock music. And then that trickled down in the early 80s to Venom and kind of that next generation of anger, if you will, that angry music. It was great. And I was listening to Motorhead. I was listening to Venom. I was listening to Slayer. I was also listening to like more new wave British heavy metal stuff, like I was listening to The Maidens. And that kind of stuff as well, but the lyrics never really hit me. Yes, you had metaphorical stuff about the devil, and and it was good to offend other people, and it was good to be an antagonist when there was a lot of things going on. With there was a big Satan worshipping scare in the early '80s and
0: satanic panic.
1: Yeah, the satanic panic stuff. So it was good to kind of have people a little off-put by that. I didn't mind that. It made them leave me alone and not want to talk to me, which is totally fine. And it segued into the guy at the local record store recognizing myself and my group of friends who would go and peruse the metal section in this little indie store every weekend for him to say, hand me a Black Flag record. And it was damaged. (laughs) Black Flag record, the album, with Rollins singing, and all of the ferocity, all of the self-loathing, all of the listening to even the song Damaged, had a profound effect on me, and I went from just buying those kinds of records to buying the heavy metal records into buying more punk and hardcore, which the lyrics were much more resonant to me than what I would have experienced in just continuing to go down sort of the hard rock milieu. There's this
0: misconception that listening to songs like Damaged will make you damaged. Listening to songs like Wasted will make you wasted, etc. And how did angry music or so-called angry music affect your own anger issues, your own emotions, your own mental health struggles over the years?
1: I always find it funny because when I, so I have ADD. ADHD it was undiagnosed for many, many years. I found ways to manage that with my personal life and my and other aspects of it. So I think I've turned out okay, but the cacophony in my head was made clearer by the faster the music was, the calmer that I felt. I was able to do work listening to Suicidal Tendencies First Record. As a matter of fact, I can't work without ambient noise or ambient chaos. There's a part of my brain that needs to feed on that. So that's definitely something where I immediately had that gravity towards punk rock and to hardcore. And just the lyrics being resonant to feelings of what every adolescent goes through. It's not like anything was especially traumatic or whatever it is. But as you're going through those adolescent changes... As you're living your life in high school and all the wonderful things that that brings, having those songs as an outlet, having damage, not damage me, but empower me, means that it was a form of self-expression and catharsis, pure catharsis in that way. And it was in a way that metal never was able to give that to me.
0: You mentioned having some serious health issues when you were young.
1: Yeah. So I have a, a genetic immune condition, which means I don't really fight bacterial infections that well. Initially in the 80s, when I started getting chronic pneumonias, everybody thought I had AIDS. And they didn't know how a friggin' 10-year-old kid from the suburbs in Westchester would get AIDS. It turns out that, yes, it's an immune disorder, but it was actually genetic. Luckily, I was able to find a medical professional who now is Professor Emeritus of Immunology at a teaching university in New York, who was able to save my life. But I used to sit there as my mom and my dad were taking me to all these medical appointments, getting punctured and whatever, and being debilitated again from years and years of horrible pneumonias where I couldn't really breathe. And hearing the doctors tell my parents that, yeah, he's probably going to be dead in a couple of years. And hearing my mom cry and listening, being like, hey, I'm still, I'm here. I'm hearing what you're saying. I know what being dead means. And I'm not really particularly looking forward to that. But that put a perspective on my life where if I'm living on borrowed time and I'm lucky enough to be born now where there's a treatment for what my condition is and I don't get sick anymore, I want to do what I want. And it was, again, another reason why I started the label. It's another reason why I got empowered to be part of this is because it also took me five years to get back into physical shape after being so sick. And not too many people have get the gift, and I call it a gift, of being aware of your own mortality at such a young age. I always joke around and I tell people, if I ever had a band... I would call it wake up screaming at night when I realized that hour when you start to go to bed and your, head, and your brain starts to unwind a little bit, all I can think about was this could be the night that I'm dead. I would have a nightmare and I would wake up screaming because my little friend Death was always sitting next to me as I was going to sleep. And I wish it was hyperbolic, but it's absolutely true.
0: You started the label and started meeting people in bands and became friends with them. And like you said, your people, your team, how did that help with the things you're going through, finding those people?
1: You know, it was interesting. The Westchester community of ne'er-do-wells and rockers was a pretty close-knit community. I had this core group of solid friends who stuck by me even when I was sick. And we all got into music together. People faded in and faded out, but I met these gang of kids from Yonkers and riding our bikes around, and we went to record stores, and eventually that turned into the formation of Breakdown, which then resulted in the creation of Raw Deal and Killing Time, and these guys all nurtured me to basically take my skills with illustration and take my skills with respect to computers and I wanted to start a label. And that's really what happened is that this core group of people were my tribe. And when we went down to New York, we all found a larger tribe together. And it was spectacular because I had never before amongst the freaks and the people with the blue hair and people that I never thought even could possibly exist in the real world you know guys that look like they just fell out of a mad max movie (laughs) kind of i thought the spiky haired punk rock kids looked like in the beginning to realize that that would become more of my family and my social infrastructure than anybody else my core group of friends really did help me along to in my path of discovery and then ultimately cajoled me into starting the label
0: were there people Who you're able to lean on during those times?
1: You know, a core group of friends as we started assembling, and they became like my boys, you know, and I've known most of them for 40 or 30 at this point. We're all still pretty tight. And that's the way it was. You know, it's like one of those Ben Affleck movies where it's like, hey, I'm going to need you to hurt some people we're going to go out and we're never going to talk about it again. And uh, the only question they ask is who's driving. (laughs) That's the level of support that I get from this family of guys and girls, by the way, who I've assembled over the years, all misfit kids in a lot of different ways. But now as adults, probably some of the most well-adjusted people that I know.
0: A lot of imagery and videos of, people at shows, part of the New York hardcore scene, you showed it to your parents or to some person that you know is more conservative, they would think, oh my God, this is like violent. People are getting hurt. How do these kids do this? I'm sure I know your answer, but there is a code.
1: It's freedom, man. They look at it as aggression because that's the lens through which they're looking at it. But when you look at it through the lens of somebody who's doing it, music is driving you, it's providing some sort of weird, ethereal energy to you. And you're there to pick up the pieces of somebody else. Just like they're there to pick up the pieces of you. Yeah, that's what is not recognized by your generic, normal person who's just kind of like, Oh, I like music, whatever's on the radio is okay.
0: What was that leap of faith like going to that first show and seeing that chaos around you and having to dive in literally, I guess, in some cases? I never
1: felt more uncomfortable and simultaneously at home than I did when I went to my first CBGB's Mad Night. My brain exploded. The first show that I went to, the first person that I ever really saw was Big Charlie the Bouncer at CBGB's. Charlie made Lawrence Taylor look like a midget. Lawrence Taylor being a giant linebacker dude. Big Charlie was a fixture security guy, but he was also a hardcore person, but he was a giant human being. All the kids used to jump off of his back like he was a mountain into the crowd. And then, you know, the other person that I saw, the first person I remember when I made the Mad Max reference was this guy named Troy who is this again humongous black skinhead who wore safety pins all over his thing and literally looked like somebody who fell out of a Mad max spikes all over the place he was carrying a um a beef bone (laughs) actually a beef bone down the bowery and i was like what did i get myself into what is this this is amazing so you have that simultaneous feeling of imminent danger intrigue fear and an odd sense of calm saying like yeah man this is where i gotta be and it happened with all my friends
0: it's almost a visual version of what you're talking about with the racing thoughts and listening to music and calming your mind well now you've got this whole environment around you that's doing the same thing
1: i summarize it to people by saying i love being in the eye of the storm I don't necessarily like being buffeted around by the debris, but I really enjoy having it swirl around me because it provides me with that sense of calm. I don't understand why I don't understand how it's something that I've never been able to logically assess about myself, no matter how much therapy I've had, but I love the chaos.
0: What qualities did it take for you to run that label to do it all these years? Did that help you mentally keeping you focused?
1: You know, one of the things uh, about my growing up is number one is I had to entertain myself as a kid who is who had to find his own path back to fitness and, and health because they didn't do that back then. They were just like, Oh, you're cured. Congratulations. And, you know, nothing. I was the one who applied myself to swim several miles a week and rehabbing myself because nobody else was doing it. But in my head, I was still kind of that introverted person who just loved to dive into things. And my ADD helped me because not only was I this introvert who was comfortable staying alone and doing work for hours, the ADHD element means not just that you can't concentrate sometimes, sometimes you hyper-concentrate. And I was able to learn graphic design myself, the old school analog way of doing graphic design. And I immersed myself in these little things. And to think in two years, I was able to figure out how to do a record label when there was no such thing as the internet. My friend and I, Jim Gibson, who I started the label with, when we put all the masters together from our friends in the New York scene, we did that. And I think that those building blocks of me being a little bit of a loner, a creatively oriented person, a pathologically curious person, and the ADHD element where it means I could stay up for 12 hours and think I only spent 20 minutes working, even though I was up the whole entire night, was actually very, very helpful in getting these ideas out. Would I have the energy for that now? I actually don't know if I could stay up past 1 a.m. anymore because I'll just pass out. But when you're 20 years old and you have all that energy and you're freshly worked out and you're like, I leveraged that to start the label. And my friends were, again, helpful because they were in popular bands and they were the first ones to pony up a couple of masters to do where the wrong things are. Was a good experience and it was just this explosion of creativity that happened with the people in the bands, the people who were doing labels. Everybody was just so into this and furthering the scene that it also helped reinforce that sense of community amongst the second generation hardcore kids, which is what I call myself.
0: With that shield of toughness to uh, that scene was known for? Did folks talk about, were they open about their struggles? Were they open about how they were doing mentally?
1: I don't think so. I know I wasn't. When you're 18, you don't share. I'm much more willing to just lay cards on the table now. There are some minor traumas I still don't talk about in public, but that deeply affected my view of other human beings. But for the most part, Everybody had this sense that we're part of this for a reason. While you never really talk about it as like a group therapy session or a group hug, in the 80s, you just didn't talk about it. You purged your demons and everybody silently knew why. Because something happened somewhere along the line. You don't know what it is, but if they're your friends, you support them. End of story. It's different now because there's a focus on mental health. There's a focus on acceptance. There's a focus on any number of different things. Whereas back then, it was still that veneer, as you were talking about, of I'm impervious and the only emotion that you're allowed is anger. And that takes a long time to get out of somebody. But ultimately, you understand that everybody has damage Everybody was there for a reason.
0: was my conversation with bill wilson from blackout records blackoutrecords.com for more episodes of screen therapy go to screentherapyhq.com or wherever you listen to podcasts big news the screen therapy book is available now screen therapy a punk journey through mental health tells my story and the stories of others who use punk as a catalyst for mental health like this podcast, it links the community-minded punk scene with the mental wellness of the punks who belong to it. To order the book, go to ScreenTherapyHQ.com. For merch, check out the newly opened store at ScreenTherapyHQ.com store. And for even more designs, check out Screen Therapy on TeePublic. Okay, enough promoting. It's time for some thanking. Thank you for listening to Screen Therapy. Doing this podcast and talking to folks about punk rock and mental health has been a crucial part of my own mental stability, and it means so much to me that you're out there listening. Screen Therapy is created in the Cathet region of coastal British Columbia, Canada, on the traditional territory of the Clahoman Nation. Contact me at screentherapyhq.com or email me at screentherapypodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Let's talk about punk rock and mental health. Until next time, take care and be well.